Hello, I'm uh, Adib Saleh, one of the chief residents over at St. Mary Mercy Hospital. Today I have a special guest, Dr. McHale, who is one of the managing partners at EPMG. How are you, Dr. McHale? Great, thank you. How are you? Well, today we're having a uh, kind of an impromptu uh, podcast. You know, we don't have these very often, so we're going to make it a special occasion today. Kind of how did you get into emergency medicine? Um, well, I'll try to make it a short story. I um, wanted to be a doctor since I was 10 years old youngest I could remember. That was a memory I had. Uh, I used to watch a show on TV called ER, the paramedic show, if you guys ever remember that. And so uh, for those of you that have to look at reruns, it was kind of a lot of fun thinking that you're going to sort of rescue and save people. And so I had always intended to be a physician since I was a kid. And then I went into medical school and never really thought about emergency medicine, honestly. And it was about third year of medical school when you sort of had to begin to decide and I was committed to becoming a surgeon. And uh, my advisor was a pediatric surgeon who I greatly admired, and I decided I was gonna follow his footsteps, so I wanna be a pediatric surgeon. And so he was my advisor, I was gonna go to pediatric surgery, and I was getting towards the first few months of fourth year when you sort of have to decide, you're gonna put in your application and go all that process. And then he sat me down and we had that advisor talk. And this is gonna be a longer story than I was intending, but anyway. That's fine. Uh, we had that advisor talk and he sat me down and he said, you know, you could be a great pediatric surgeon, but I just want you to make sure you make a decision that you understand what it means more than just what you're seeing me do in the hospital. So he says, if you can think of anything else that you might love, because here's what I've had to trade. I had to give up as a pediatric surgeon. My children's birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. He went down through this list of stuff and, he, and I was saying, why are you trying to talk me out of this? I've decided I want to be a pediatric surgeon. But he was giving me really sage advice. He's actually on staff at St. Joe's, and I, and I see him frequently. And so I, went, uh, I left that meeting, and I thought, okay, is there anything else? So he left me with it. He says, if you can find anything that you might think you might love as much, take a look at it and see. So then I decided to take an elective in San Diego, beautiful place of the country. I said, uh, I'm going to take an elective away. And um, I went and looked at ENT. Okay. So I went into ENT in October and decided that was going to be it. I was not going to be a pediatric surgeon. Lifestyle was not as harsh as a pediatric surgeon. So I said, okay, I can be a surgeon. I'll just do the head and neck stuff. And I was in San Diego, a beautiful place. And after like the second day, I said, I can't do this. <laughs> I cannot slice people's necks open like that. Just take cancers out every day. And I can't just do the ear. So I was in a quandary in October in my fourth year. And I remembered back the show ER as I'm flying back. And I was filling out my applications for ER. And I said, I'm just going to do this back then. So this was back, what, in 1990, 89, back in the time when emergency medicine was not really present. The University of Michigan, where I went to school, did not have a program. My uh, head of the department wouldn't give me a letter of recommendation. He says, you're wasting your life. I'm not going to let you go into ER. Pick something else, take a year off, figure out your life, and do something different. And I said, no, I'm going to take the chance. And then I did the October rotation at Henry Ford downtown in, in October uh, as my ER rotation. Yes. And the second shift I walked out of, I said, this is it. And I never looked back. And it just clicked. And I can tell you honestly, it was the best decision that I've made. And sometimes you just have to trust your gut. And when yep. your gut is telling you, 
you know, do something else, then uh, then you should go down that pathway. No, it's funny you mentioned that because I was working on my surgery rotation, and the surgeon tells me, Adib, you have a wife and a kid. If you want a family life, don't do surgery. <laughs> so my advisor, you know, uh, Dr. Polly, who's really well regarded, um, he and I connected when I came back to Ann Arbor, and he's a pediatric surgeon, yeah. and, and he knew I went into emergency medicine, and he says, I see you're really happy, and I said, I am. Good. It's always good. Um, we have our incoming interns uh, around this time. They've been at it by, what, one week now? Any, any you know, big advice for them starting out, you know, what to look for, kind of what kind of attitude they should have, how they should be thinking starting out? Advice for first week interns. Well, <laughs> well looking into the future, obviously. Right. <laughs> well, you've already made your decision to choose emergency medicine, so I'm just going to go back one step, and then we can talk about, you know, what advice I might have, if any. Uh, and I don't like to give advice, so in, and I have a f open door policy. A lot of people come in and talk to me, and I said I'm not giving you advice, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but here's what you might want to think about as you go forward with this question that you have. Um, I interviewed for um, for medical school graduates going to emergency medicine with our program for at least 15 years or so, and within the first year, I hooked onto one question. And I stayed with that question every year. And it changed a little bit and varied a little bit. But I've had residents come back to me 10 years later at a reunion or something like that and say, I still remember your interview and I remember that question that you asked. I said, okay, that must have resonated then. And the question actually has been become more refined, but it's kind of like this. It's, you know, you have a very nervous candidate. I only have 20 minutes with them. I'm gonna ask them only a handful of questions. And after I sort of butter them up and get them to relax and, and we sort of talk small talk, then I ask them an important question, and this one comes around second or third. And it's really to figure out what, what my advisor asked me, what the pediatric surgeon asked me, is have you decided you understood what it means to become an emergency physician or not? And you want to enter into this field, have you made the right choice, right? And so I ask him the question is, how much preparation have you had coming into this interview whether it's the first one in your circuit or it's the 16th, how, what's the answer am I going to get? And the question is, <clears throat> if I have to look in Wikipedia for the definition of an emergency physician, because then you've looked at an ophthalmologist and you've looked at a radiologist and you've looked at XYZ specialist and you read what it says to be one of those specialists and then you read emergency medicine, I want you to write me the definition of what it is. So it's a study of what? What are you getting yourself into? What is, what is your craft? What are you gonna specialize in? So I share that with you because I think now as you start as interns in your first year, you have to remind yourself every day what it is that you decided to choose as a career. Because this is not a decision that has a four-year window like it was before. I go to college, I go to medical school, I go to residency. This is a career decision that's gonna last 40 years. So I'm 30 years into it, and I've got, you know, 10 left or so uh, that I'm hoping to practice. And I think you have to remind yourself what brought you here and what drove you. What is your drive to become an emergency physician? What does that mean? And so that's one sort of overall theme to this. When it really gets tough, 
when you get tired, when you get frustrated, when you make your first mistake, and you will. You will make a first mistake. The good thing is, is you're under supervision. We don't let you practice alone. We let you practice and practice and practice and continue practicing. So we continue practicing today, and 30 years later, I'm still practicing medicine. That's why we use that term. And so I think just remind yourself, give yourself a little bit of um, allowance to be okay with making an error and asking for help. So the thing you have to remind yourself is you're not alone, and there's lots of people here supporting you and protecting you to allow you to succeed. And you're not going to know now what you should know in four years, because that's why you're training. All right. What is like your most memorable case? I know it's even over 30 years. Wow. But I'm going to disappoint you here. You know why? And and I'm going to. My kids asked me this. Okay. So my kids, who now have grown up and now they're graduating college and high school, and they asked me, you know, Dad, what happened today? Tell us about something that happened in the year. And they want to hear the gory stories. And I and I and I resisted really sharing that with them. Once in a while, there'll be a really heartfelt, you know, great story to share that was, you know, compassion related. And I might share one of those occasionally, but they're extremely disappointed that I don't have the stories that they can watch on TV. And it's funny because it's actually not because I'm not wanting to share, it's because I've erased my memory bank. And it's hard for me to remember because to be fresh for the next day, you've got to clear that. So I, I'm just not really good at um, holding on to those. I don't have enough room in my head to keep holding on to those stories. So it, maybe it's been a protective mechanism. That's actually that's actually a good point. I mean, it's a good. And I guess the follow-up question would be, what is? I mean, what is? Do you have a method for that to kind of come in fresh the next day and yeah, minimizing I, I burnout? Just, I try. I mean, obviously, the hardest thing is not to take your work home with you. You know, we deal with life and death situations all the time. So to be able to clear the memory banks, to be fresh the next day, you've got to try to keep it from coming home. Okay. Um, and so I, I didn't do that. I didn't bring it at the dinner table. I didn't bring it home to tell stories. And honestly, I couldn't remember a few hours later, you know, other than a few, you know, unique situations. So um, I do remember one story from being a medical student that for, for whatever reason, um, sticks with me and I just have it so vivid in my head that doesn't go away and it's not a it's not a really um, you know um, medically impressive story at all it was my first experience of of embarrassment okay and my first I don't know why I call it a mistake or not but I'll, I'll share this with sort of the whole world for the very first time. okay <laughs> hey this is an exclusive everybody and I, I shared it with a few close friends but now I have I have uh, gotten to the point where I'm comfortable telling the story, and it's going to be unnamed, of course. But I was a medical student, and I was asked to go in, it's a third year, and do a full neuro exam. And this was an unfortunate patient who was non communicative. They were severely demented and could not communicate, couldn't get a history, couldn't get anything else. So I said, okay, well, I'm just going to do a physical exam that's really thorough and documented, and so I can report it out. And so I do a physical exam, and this patient was diabetic, and they had um, uh, development of of gangrene. And so I was doing the stupid exam of checking to see if, you know, they could feel anything. Yeah. And as I did, the toe came off in my hand. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in total shock. 
you know, you can't put it that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm going, I can't stitch it, I can't do anything. And, and frankly, when it was gone, it looked better. I mean, the, the foot was yeah. And so in my, in my rush, in my haste, and my embarrassment, I grabbed a piece of Kleenex and tissues and just put it in the trash. And walked out and never came Browns <laughs> 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 the next day, you know, nobody noticed it, and I was like, <laughs> "Don't worry, we will not blackmail you." I promise. No, and I did not include that in my exam. Right. <laughs> so, touching back on wellness, because that, that's a very hot topic right now for medicine in general, not just emergency medicine. I know emergency medicine has a very, you know, supposedly high rate of burnout. I mean, how do you how do you kind of deal with uh, stress and preventing burnout. It is probably the number one issue that I am focused on right now and our organization is looking at. Because um, if you were part of the talk just a little bit ago, I think there was a part, there was an element missing in the triple aim, right? And that has to do with the health of the provider, the workforce that's supposed to take care of these patients. And we have not paid attention to that. And the burden and the, the workload is becoming way more intense. And emergency medicine feels it, and there's not a surprise that we are, you know, at the top of the list of people feeling like, can I continue doing this or not? So when you look at a 30-year career, how do you protect yourself? 40-year career, how do you protect yourself from that? And I think what we've learned is we've taught people in medical school, at least in my generation, wrongly. We've taught them to not ask for help. You ask your senior resident for you know, advice or help or something that's going wrong, it's a sign of weakness. And I think we've made a huge mistake in that culture of how we've grown up as physicians. And I think we're beginning to see that change. I think we're beginning to see that really effectively change. And I think what's underlying that is recognizing that we are part of a team. We're not isolated, we're not alone. And I think we've seen our peers suffer alone and they don't ask for help when they need it. So we've got to create permission is the first step to ask for help and then really embrace it and encourage it and be part of our culture going forward that we want people to feel like it's okay to feel like you're stressed and you're burnt out and you had a bad case and you need somebody to talk to and you need somebody to listen to you and it, it's not that sort of macho model that we used to have, hopefully, going forward, that um, you don't do that, right? You're not a good doctor because you ask for help. I think that's got to change. And the first place we change that is right now and right here in our training program. I agree. So and our training uh, programs have really got to embrace the fact that you got to rely on each other. You've got to rely on your peers and your mentors and your seniors, residents, and Yes, we've done the work hours thing from just a physical burden, but there's a huge emotional toll that goes to what we're doing, right? So you guys are more savvy than we were in the electronic world. They're attributing a lot of the pressures in healthcare right now to the pressures of having to manage an EMR, an electronic system, and all the alerts and all the things that go on with having to do the non-patient stuff, which is consuming probably twice as much stuff as actual patient care. Yeah in our everyday going forward. And that wasn't the case 30 years ago. That was not the Marcus Welby, you know, model of care. Yeah, and actually now a lot of residency programs are developing uh, wellness programs because of this issue. And I agree, I think there's a lot of like a pride thing. Nobody wants to talk about the problems, kind of just suck it up and kind of deal with it and the problems that will show up later. 
after the fact. Yeah, so, and uh, I think that's completely wrong. Yeah. You know, I think we've got to look at it very differently. We've got to really embrace the idea that uh, this is a tough line of career that we've chosen, and we've got to be um, aware of what the toll it takes on people, and we've got to create support systems, yeah. right? It's a great career. I would have never chosen anything else, and I've not looked back from that first shift to Henry Ford, downtown Detroit, and I've and I look today, I said, you know, I wouldn't have done anything differently, and I've been blessed with lots of opportunities and different ways of doing things. And all, all that comes from uh, enjoying what you do. Yeah. And if you enjoy what you do every day, um, you'll get to do more of it. That's good, good advice. Uh, final question before we finish. For sure. As we're getting ready to graduate this year, any advice for the exiting seniors coming out to be, you know, first-year attendings? But the exiting seniors already graduated in June. Well, we're the... Next the exiting next seniors. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's still early, but thinking a year ahead. Wait, wait, you're thinking about exiting now? <laughs> oh, yeah. I got my exit plan from yeah. now. <laughs> All right. So you're, you're, you're uh, anticipating the next 11 months. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so a couple thoughts. One is I think you do have the privilege of being in a four-year program. I think that is an opportunity, again, under this sort of protective environment, um, to really challenge yourself because you're protected in a way that you have supervision, you have mentors, you have faculty, you have people surrounding you who have got experience and trying to protect you from making the mistakes that we will ultimately all make and hopefully less and have a less of a consequence. So I think in your fourth year, the benefit of a four-year program, and I trained from a three-year one, so I've come completely to the support and commitment of the benefits of a four-year training program. Kevin will appreciate my comments. And that is, um, there is no substitute, really, for the opportunity to continue to practice in an environment that protects you while you're learning. Because I do not think you really reach your plateau of experience and, and sort of hitting 12 cylinders in everything that you do really well till around, you know, the range is between five and seven years of postgraduate of experience after you've seen 5,000, 10,000 patients. So you know, they talk about expertise develops, you know, from thousands of hours yeah. and thousands of patients. That's where you develop your expertise. My experience you know, is more important than all of my training and my medical school and my reading. You know, There's no substitute for that. So an additional year under the protective environment here, we are allowed to challenge yourself. So what I would say I tried to do and take advantage of in my last year, my third year of training, was to feel like I'm almost drowning in every shift. Push myself to the point where you know, I don't think I can take any more. You know, that last gasp of air before you go under of how much can I do? And what's miraculous at every end of every shift is I didn't die, Because right? <laughs> <laughs> I still came up for air. Yeah. And the shift ended, yeah. right? And I get to come back again. But I think it's that pushing yourself to challenge yourself to your ability to see what you're capable of. Because that's what you need when you're then independent alone, by yourself, remote or not, to know what you're capable of doing and then you'll have the confidence you've been there and done that before. So when you're juggling six or seven critical patients and still have to make sure the documentation is good and not to miss a follow-up lab and not to miss that lung nodule on a CT and be attentive to detail and push yourself to the maximum and feel like you're drowning, you can't do this anymore and at the end of the shift, you're done. And you figure, well, I did that. And then you put a string of those together and all of a sudden, that first one is not as hard as that tenth one. Nothing, nothing pays you at that point. I mean, you just yeah. I mean, 
you'll have experiences that you'll be surprised with, you know, 10 years after practice. Yeah. But you're prepared for it. That's very, very sound advice. And I know it's always like that temptation to have that senioritis and kind of slow down a little bit. But I agree. I think we should always go in motivated yeah, we, to we see, see as see many it, people as possible. Faculty see it. The glide path. Yeah. <laughs> coming too early. Yeah. And it's our job to recognize that and to let you know that you're making a mistake. If you don't take advantage of that opportunity, um, you'll regret it later on. So our job is to push you. It's not because we want you to see more patients. It's to help you refine your training opportunity because this is the last chance you've got. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that closes our discussion. If you have any closing comments at all? I don't. I just wish everybody, um, you know, an opportunity to look at one thing in a career, and that is you got to seek happiness. And the happiness comes from making sure you have everything in balance. Right? It's not just about your career choice. It's not about picking emergency medicine or not. It's about knowing your priorities, home life, family life, other uh, passions that you have in the context of your career. Right? And it's a career, it's not a job. And so I think you've got to put it in context and make sure you have a happy balance. That's my you know, only advice that I get. Thank you so much, Dr. McHale. It was an honor having you. Thank and, you. And uh, we hope to have you again.